God's church has endured through the ages. Jesus said in Matthew 16:18, I will build my church, and the gates of hell or the grave or Hades will not prevail against it. So through the millennia, thousands of years, 2,000 years around, God's church has prevailed. One historic church falsely claims that it has unbroken apostolic succession. You can read about the fallacies of that claim in the new Tomorrow's World magazine with Dr. Douglas Winnale's article, Francis I, the Final Pope. Uh, by the way, how many of you have received your new magazine? Or if any of you have? Okay, only a few. So hopefully that will arrive uh, soon in the mail. Of course, it's the May-June issue, and uh, that's only a few days away. But Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and it's called his body. And he's revealed the attitudes and characteristics of the church throughout history, even down to the end time, to our time today, leading up to his second coming. The revelation is recorded, in, as you know, in the second and third chapters of the book of Revelation. And Jesus evaluates each of the seven churches. He reveals their weaknesses. He gives them correction. And, of course, you might want to turn there to Revelation, the first chapter. Let's take a look at the setting in Revelation, the first chapter. The Apostle John was writing to the seven churches in Asia, which is now modern Turkey. So Revelation 1 and verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, or modern Turkey. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's God's presence. He was and is and is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. If he's the firstborn, there are many more that will be born into God's kingdom from the dead. And the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Again, he continually reminds us of that great sacrifice that reconciled us to God. To him who loved us and washed us from our own sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. So God has called us to be kings and priests. We have a high calling. To him be glory and dominion forever. So that's the setting. And John is writing to the seven churches. And then later on here he says in verse 8, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, he'd gone through trials and tests. In fact, he was on a penal colony in the island of Patmos, there in the Aegean Sea, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, of course, the uh, Protestants try to say that means Sunday. There's no connection whatsoever between the term Lord's day and the first day of the week. If John meant uh, the first day of the week, he would have used the phrase first day of the week as he did in his gospel. But the Lord's Day is talking about the theme of the whole book of Revelation, which is the day of the Lord, the year preceding the return of Christ. And that's the theme of the book of Revelation. All of the events that lead up to the second coming, the return of Christ. The Lord's Day is that one year, the day of the Lord preceding the return of Christ. 
I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So John wrote to those seven churches. Those seven churches existed at the time, and John was sending this particular message to all seven. If you've seen a map of uh, Asia, you see that it was on a mail route, kind of a circuitous route, and uh, I think some of our brethren here have even visited uh, those seven churches, something we might want to consider as a church activity sometime in the future. But those seven churches also depict the eras of the church from the time of John all the way to the end of the, this age, to the time of Christ. And some of our older members have observed the last three of those churches in the end time, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Revelation 3, verse 16, you know the very strong warning to the Laodicean church in uh, verse 16 of chapter 3. He says uh, the heading here in the New King James Bible, perhaps some of you have a headings in your Bible, it says what? The lukewarm church. Verse 16. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Who is he talking to? He was talking to a church of God, or this is a message to a church of God. So my question for you today is, how are the churches of God performing now in this end time? Are we fulfilling the responsibilities as God's church and God's people? There are hundreds of church groups claiming to follow the teachings of the worldwide church of God under the past leadership and apostleship of Mr. Herbert Armstrong. Hundreds. Are they under judgment? Let's turn to 1 Peter 4, verse 17. 1 Peter 4, 17. We'll be coming back to Revelation 2 and 3 later on. But here is basically the theme of the sermon today, 1 Peter 4, verse 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin where? At the house of God. We, brethren, the churches of God the house of God, are under judgment. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So he's saying here that basically the churches of God obey the gospel of God. Verse 18, Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So God is creating in all of us his perfect righteous character, and even as we suffer, we continue to do good as we cooperate with God in creating us in us his perfect righteous character. The churches of God are now under judgment. The title of the sermon today is Churches Under Judgment. God is judging his churches. But how are we, that is the living church of God, performing under this judgment? And how are other churches of God performing under this end-time judgment? Here in this last part of the prophetic end times, there are three areas of judgment 
One is God's judgment on the nations. Secondly, God's judgment on individuals. And thirdly, God's judgment on the churches. I'll just be talking on the uh, judgment on the churches, but I just want to briefly mention God's judgments on the nations. You might turn here to um, Revelation, the uh, 18th chapter, Revelation 18, as an example of God's judgment on the nations. That takes place during the day of the Lord. Revelation 18 and uh, verse 9. Revelation 18, verse 9. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her, that is, the fall of Babylon, when they see the smoke of her burning, standing in a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. God is judging the nations. I think you know the end-time framework, and I won't spend too much time on that, but the three major prophetic uh, milestones are the Great Tribulation, which lasts for about two and a half years, and that is Satan's wrath on Israel, physical Israel, and spiritual Israel. The Laodiceans are going to be in that Great Tribulation, as we'll see later on. So there is that milestone of the Great Tribulation. And then, of course, the heavenly signs, the second basic uh, milestone. You might turn there to Revelation, the sixth chapter, Revelation 6. And then you see the last year, that is the day of the Lord, that follows after that. And that expression, day of the Lord, is in about 30 different prophecies in your Bible. Revelation 6, we have the heavenly size or cosmic disturbances. Sometimes it is called here, even the heading in the New King James Bible, uh, verse 12. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. And the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. This is at the end of the Great Tribulation, transitioning into the day of the Lamb's wrath. How do we know that? Well, just read what it says. After the kings of the earth and the great men are frightened to death, they say, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. And, note at the end of verse 16, and from the wrath of the Lamb. Verse 17, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So the following period of time is God's judgments on the nation. It's called the day of the Lord. Now, we've had telecasts on that. We've had uh, an audio CD that we offered from that telecast, and if we do, uh, it did air February 24th, 2013, called the Prophesied Day of the Lord. How many of you have an audio CD of the Day of the Lord? You see your hands. Oh, very good. And uh, if my program uh, airs again as a rerun, uh, those of you who don't have it, uh, I'd like you to order it. So uh, help the response. But uh, it is a very... Uh, illuminating and informative, informative audio CD, and I hope that you, uh, those of you who don't have it, will get a copy of it. Now, that 
end-time prophetic time chart is also in the booklet Armageddon and Beyond, and it shows the in the centerfold of that booklet, Armageddon Beyond, shows the three-and-a-half-year uh, milestones, the Great Tribulation, the Heavenly Signs, and the Day of the Lord, and as well uh, four different events that are ongoing during those three-and-a-half years. But we need to understand that uh, God's judgment will be on the nations, and that we can spend a lot more time on that, but I want to just go on to the next area of God's judgment, and that's on individuals at the end time. Turn to Romans, the 14th chapter, Romans 14, and here we realize that every one in God's church is going to be judged or is being judged or will be judged individually. Romans, the 14th chapter, the context here is uh, the judging your brother, and he says in verse 10, Romans 14, verse 10, but why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, can um, they were judging one another as whether they were eating or not eating or uh, putting special attention on one day or another. Uh, so those were things that were optional, not things that were doctrinal is the issue here. But the point is that God says... We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We understand that we do that every day. We come before God's throne every day. We are being judged. But is that something that's terrifying or is a terrible experience for us? Well, we know that with the white throne judgment period, which we believe to be about 100 years, that this is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for all those who've never had their salvation opportunity to learn to accept Christ's sacrifice for them, to learn from their mistakes as they're resurrected at the end of the thousand years when the white throne judgment takes place. So a judgment is a period of time, and that period of time can be an opportunity, or it can be difficult depending on your attitude or depending on, again, whether you're converted, whether you're cooperative with God and you're letting him create in you your perfect character. So we have three areas of judgment, God's judgment on the nations, God's judgment on individuals, and God's judgment on his churches. So let's take a look at his evaluation, just a brief review of Revelation 2 and 3, of Christ's evaluation of each of the seven churches. So let's turn back then to Revelation, the second chapter, and see what he says. To the angel of the church of Ephesus Right, These things who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your work, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. Now, there are some even in our day today that claim they are liars. I claim they are apostles. Excuse me. <laughs> Freudian slip there, but, but claim they are apostles, but their fruits demonstrate that they are not. They appointed themselves. He goes on to say, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove 
your lampstand from your place unless you repent. This is a very strong criticism of Christ. He compliments them, and we learn that in our spokesman club evaluations, you start off with a positive statement, and then you uh, tell them something that needs to be changed. He calls this the loveless church. And so each of us, when we review all of these seven churches, have to examine ourselves and say, have I left my first love? And to be honest about it and say, yes, if I have, then I have to do what Christ tells me to do. And he says, repent and do the first works. So we have to individually examine ourselves when we, when we review each of these seven churches because it's a message to us. And he says in verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it's a lesson to all of us. We must listen to the lessons of each of the seven churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So this is the loveless church. Then you have the Smyrna church, which is called the persecuted church. And he just gives them encouragement not to fear, in verse 10, about the things which they are about to suffer. Be faithful unto death, he says, and I will give you the crown of life. And then we come to the Pergamus Church. My wife and I have visited the Pergamon Museum in Berlin, uh, where they actually do have uh, the, uh, the throne from uh, archaeological excavations in Pergamus and are brought there to Berlin. It was called the uh, Seat of Satan, interesting enough. But here the angel of the church in Pergamus write, These things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is, it was in Pergamus, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have more than those that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. We had a sermon earlier about the way of Balaam. Balaam was trying to go as far as he could in the wrong direction and still be considered righteous. He said, oh, well, if, if uh, Balak would give me his house full of gold, I can't uh, sacrifice, I can't curse Israel. And, uh, but he did find a way later on. And uh, you read that back in Numbers, how, anyway, he told Balak to have all their beautiful women from the Moabites to go ahead and seduce the Israelite men and have them worship idols, and so God could then curse them that way. And so apparently... Uh, Balaam got his house full of gold, and God is warning the compromising church, you have that same kind of compromise. You want to be called right, you want to do what's wrong, and go as far as you can doing wrong, but still be considered right. Now, I know what that is. You know what it is. When you know that you've been tempted in your, in the, in your sins, and you want to go just as far as you can, well, I, I think I can sin just this little bit, you know, and, and you compromise, you rationalize, then you keep going and going and going until, until unless you, God corrects you and you uh, are corrected, uh, you're going to cross the line and you're going to have to pay a big penalty. But this is a compromising church. Dr. Merritt has written articles on compromising. We don't want to compromise. We want to stand for the truth and be strong pillars of the truth. 
He says, verse 16, Repent, or else I will come to you and quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Oh, whose church is this? A church that's uh, going the way of Balaam, that put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed and to commit sexual immorality? Was that God's church? Yes, it was God's church. Otherwise, Christ wouldn't even be addressing the issue. He was correcting them. Who's the head of that church? Well, he's writing to the angel of the church, who could be also considered a a leader of the church, but Christ is the head of each of these seven churches. So we have parallels to our modern day, and we'll come to that a little later, but keep that in mind. Then what we see next is Thyatira, the corrupt church. If you have a New King James Bible, it'll have the subhead, the corrupt church. Some of you may not have that particular edition, but it's labeled here the corrupt church. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira, write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last one are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow the, that woman, the woman symbolizes a church, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds." I will kill through children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. He says, and all the churches shall know, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. So again, it says, hold fast that will you have until I come. But there are those in that church in Thyatira that may not have that doctrine, as he says in verse 24, and have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he, will, he who overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to him will I give power over the nation. So God is giving rewards to various people who overcome and endure to the end. So, again, who's the head of this church? Jesus Christ is the church, head of this church. It's a corrupt church. But he loves it, and he's correcting it strongly so that some in that church will respond, overcome, and be able to receive that reward of ruling over nations. Then we come, chapter 3, to the dead church. The subhead here is the dead church. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. But notice in verse 4, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garment. So they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So again, Sardis church is called a dead church, but there are few in that church which Christ says are worthy to be in the kingdom. 
Well, let me just give a little overview here, just mention um, and recommend to you Dr. Douglas Winnell's article from uh, Living Church News, January, February 2006, titled Seven Lessons from the Seven Churches. It can remind us again of our responsibility in responding to Jesus Christ. Uh, Dr. Winnell wrote, quoting, The letters in the seven churches and the seven church eras they represent contain important lessons. Those lessons were meant for the churches in the first century and for Christians down through the ages. But they are vital for Christians today, individuals living at the end of the age in the Laodicean era. And again, that's from uh, Living Church News, January, February, an article titled, Seven Lessons from Seven Churches. And so again, brethren, I hope that you are sensitive to Christ's admonition in each of these seven churches. And if there's anything that uh, rings a bell with you, that you've left your first love, or that you're um, dying on the vine because you're not close to God, you're not stirring up God's Spirit, that you're responding to these messages here in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. We'll come back to Philadelphia and uh, the lukewarm church later, but I just want to read from uh, Mr. Herbert Armstrong's book, The Incredible Human Potential. This is page 158. These seven churches do apply to seven successive church eras, but they also apply to the whole church through all eras. In other words, the Ephesus characteristics dominated in the first era, and the Laodicean will dominate in the last. But some of these characteristics are found in every era. The message is applied to the whole church, and so I have said and written for more than 50 years, but certain characteristics predominate in the various eras. So again, we need to understand that even here in 2013, that all seven of these attitudes or characteristics are, are extant somewhere in God's church around the world. And we have to respond to Christ's judgment, evaluation, and admonition. So as we look at those seven churches, we learn certain lessons. Was Christ the head of all of those seven churches? I think you can say yes. Was the Apostle John actively visiting and governing them? No, he wrote to them, but he was incarcerated on the Isle of Patmos. He was not able. They did, it was not the period of cell phones and uh, landline phones. Uh, he could not... Uh, communicate with them, and administer those churches. But Christ did through the letters that he sent to them. The point is, brethren, that they had their own basic church groups together, which Christ was the head of each one of those. And uh, he was correcting them for all their problems and weaknesses and complimenting them on their strengths. Are there any parallels to the end time? Christ judges the churches of Revelation 2 and 3 in the first century and by extension from the first century until today. I asked earlier, how are God's churches doing today in the 21st century? Well, let's first of all understand what the church is. The church is a spiritual organism. I think you know 1 Corinthians 12. We covered that in my sermon three weeks ago on members of his body. 
But let's review that, 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. So what is the church? 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact the body is not one member but many. So he's defining the body here as those who have been baptized by the Spirit. By one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. So the one definition of the true church is those who have God's Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual organism as opposed to a business legally formed corporation. And Mr. Armstrong always made that distinction. I remember even uh, him in the recital hall making that distinction as we had one major uh, challenge in, in corporation uh, discussion. So the spiritual body is not the legally incorporated church registered in a particular city, state, or nation. However, there is a nominal corporate body, in this case called the Church of God at Corinth. And so that's in chapter 1, verse 2. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Church of God at Corinth. Was he writing just to those who were spiritually converted? No. Were all the members of the Church of God converted. No. Uh, this was one of the most corrective letters in, in, in the Bible because they had divisions among them. Well, let's just read that, chapter 3 and verse 2. Many were nominal members of the church of, at Corinth, but were, the, were they all members of the spiritual body? Many were carnal. 1 Corinthians 3 and, uh, well, verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. You are still carnal. When you read back in Revelation, the 8th chapter, he says to be spiritually minded is life. To be carnally minded is death. So they were not spiritually minded. They were carnal. Now, let me make a distinction. The word carnal, carnal just simply means fleshly. And Paul said, I am carnal. But he was not carnally minded. And to be carnally minded is hostile to God, we read in Romans 8 and verse 7. So we are all fleshly. We all have the fleshly temptations. But we must not be carnally minded, which is a hostile, rebellious attitude towards God. He said, he gives an example of their carnality. For you are still carnal, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? 1 Corinthians 3, verse 4. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? So we see very clearly that in any church of God, there may be some who are not members of the spiritual body. The spiritual body limited to a corporate body. Mr. Herbert Armstrong referred to the Church of God's seventh day as the Sardis Church. Did he consider it to be a genuine Church of God? Yes, he did. But it was not the Radio Church of God, of which he was the leader at the time. In fact, Dr. Meredith is told how 
when he was going up to uh, work in the in Oregon in the summer, how Mr. Armstrong recommended that uh, Dr. Meredith and his colleagues actually visit the Church of God Seventh Day in Oregon. It was a different fellowship, a different group, a different organization. And as Dr. Meredith has attested, he also referred to the Church of God Seventh Day as a branch of God's church. Are there branches of God's true church? Most of us, when we were in the Radio Church of God in the 50s or 60s, uh, before it became the Worldwide Church of God, we understood that there was one corporate church which represented the true church of God around the world because all of the converted spiritual people that we knew of were in that particular corporation called the Radio Church of God, later the Worldwide Church of God. But even in that particular period of time, there were groups of people we found from time to time around the world, sometime in Africa, sometime in South America, even in Asia, where someone would be find out there is a church of God there in South America that is called the Church of God, and they actually keep the 14th day uh, Passover. They also do foot washing, but they didn't know about the Worldwide Church of God, and we didn't know about them. But if Christ is in charge, what happened was that he would let them and uh, those in Pasadena find out about each other, and they would finally get together and be of one church. So we need to understand that there may be churches of God that we may not even know about in some other part of the world that are remnants of the true church. And if they are, they'll eventually get together with the leading church that is, that is active. We also knew at the time, of course, that uh, we tested the Radio Church of God, Worldwide Church of God, and we test the Living Church of God today with the proofs of the church. What are the proofs of the church? And uh, I hope you children uh, can answer that question. I know maybe you have a children's class. What are some of the proofs of the true church, children? Of course, I think adults should know as well. The name of the church, of course, is one of it. It's the church, true church of God. Uh, first reference in the Bible is Acts 20, verse 28. There are 12 places in the Bible. Some of us have chains in our Bible, Acts 20, verse uh, 8. And then the next reference, I believe, is 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2, uh, to the church of God at Corinth. And so there are 12 places. That identifies, is one of the identifiers of God's true church. And then I won't mention the other churches at the moment, the other proofs of the church, uh, but just to understand that at that time, uh, we understood there were mainly all of the basic converted people, the spiritual people, were in the Worldwide Church of God. And we said, this is the, the true church of God. We did not have splinters after Mr. Armstrong's death. Then the Worldwide Church apostatized, went towards Protestantism, and then there were more than 300 over a period of time, different groups that left that church, and some of most of them, or many of them, retained the characteristics of the true church of God, that is, had the name the church of God, kept the weekly seventh-day Sabbath, kept the 14th day Passover, kept the annual Sabbath, and kept some of the other uh, proofs of God's church. 
But we use the term true church in two different ways. One is a spiritual body of truly converted members apart from the corporate definition. And we also use the term true church to apply to a general group of brethren, including converted and unconverted, who may be meeting under the name of the church of God and generally holding to the fundamental doctrines of the Bible, as was the church at Corinth. So it was called the true church, or we call it the true church, uh, but it was nominally the church of God at Corinth. They were still carnal. So was it still a church? Was Corinth still a true church in a general sense? Yes, it was. Was it applied to a, a large group? And some other groups of the true church have had extreme wickedness and evil within them, as we've just seen. In Revelation 2 and 3, you say, how can that be a church of God? Teaching them to commit fornication, sacrificing to idols, you know, having the way of Balaam and the way of the Nicolaitans and, and other sins of sexual immorality in those churches. So we have to ask the question, are there branches in, true, in God's true church? Mr. Armstrong referred to the church of God's seventh day as the Sardis church. And he observed that the description of, of Sardis in the third chapter of Revelation was similar to their behavior, ap- approach, and attitude. When Christ says they are dead as a church, he states there are few names in Sardis that are worthy, as we read Revelation 3, verses 1 and 4. But the church of God's seventh day was not a part of the worldwide church of God, but God's ministry over the years has identified several within Sardis that were general Christians with God's Holy Spirit. Um, Dr. Meredith explains that in his booklet, uh, Where is God's True Church Today? And uh, how many of you have read this booklet? You can see your hands. Okay. All right. That's pretty good. That's about 63%. But uh, the rest of you really need to read this booklet. It's, It's a powerful booklet. It really explains and clears away a lot of the confusion that people are having today. With all these various groups and denominations called the Church of God, this booklet will help you to clarify in your own mind where is God's true church. And, of course, we're discussing that as part of the sermon here today. I just want to quote from page 29 of Dr. Meredith's booklet, Where is God's True Church Today? Quote, To be in the body of Christ, you must be fully surrendered to God and be led by God's Spirit. Then he quotes Romans 8, 9. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So each member, he continues, of the true church must be genuinely converted and led by God's Spirit. Again, God gives his Holy Spirit to those who obey him, Acts 5, verse 32. Yet down through the ages... There have been many different Church of God fellowships, branches of the true church that sometimes coexist. In the first century after Christ, the Apostle John wrote of seven churches in Asia Minor, which displayed attitudes that would be found throughout church history to come, each of which would also represent dominant, the dominant attitude of the church in successive eras. These different branches of God's true church Dr. Meredith writes, we're often in different parts of the world. 
perhaps at times unknown even to each other. For example, during the 12th and 13th centuries, God's true church existed among the Bogomils in Hungary, even while those believers were unaware that a similar group of Sabbath keepers existed simultaneously in Great Britain. He goes on to mention uh, over the years how the Church of God's Seventh Day had various splits, had uh, headquarters in Stanbury, Missouri, and another in Caldwell, Idaho. And he writes, From this environment, God raised up Herbert W. Armstrong, who for many years led what became known as the Worldwide Church of God. The Worldwide Church of God became by far the largest group of true believers who surrendered their lives to keep the whole law of God, observe the true Sabbath, preach the gospel of the coming kingdom of God, and use the correct name, the Church of God. Even during this time, however, there existed the aforementioned groups of the Seventh-day Church of God. Mr. Armstrong often acknowledged that these different fellowships were branches of the true church. So again, you can read that here in uh, Dr. Merritt's booklet on where is God's church today. He asked some testing questions here. He writes, During Mr. Armstrong's ministry, most whom God called to the truth found themselves asking two vital questions. And that's what many people are asking today because of so many Church of God groups. Question one, where was the truth of the Bible most clearly being preached? And two, where was the work most powerfully being done? He mentions that the work consists not only of preaching the truth of the Bible, but specifically of proclaiming to the world the soon coming kingdom of God, Matthew 24, 14, giving the Israelitish nations a strong warning of impending great tribulation, feeding the flock with the whole counsel of God, Acts 20, verse 27, and genuinely teaching, training, and preparing God's people to be kings and priests in God's kingdom, Revelation 5, verse 10. So what we've seen is the term true church, that it applies to the spiritual body of Christ, the truly converted saints of God's Holy Spirit. <clears throat> but we've also seen that the term Church of God, such as Corinth, Corinth, had both carnal and spiritual members. And if there are several branches, which one should you belong to? So several years ago, back in about, oh, I guess 1997 or so, There was a controversy in the church that, well, if you say there is a branch, then you're saying, well, that you can join any one of the branches because a branch means that it's a church of God and therefore it must be okay. No fallacy, what would you say about that? Would you want to belong to the dead church branch of Sardis? Would you want to belong to the loveless church Ephesus, that branch of God's church? Would you want to belong to the compromising church of Pergamos? No. So just because some people were just very upset at the idea that we could call a church a branch, and it's an analogy, of course, but would you belong to the corrupt church, Thyatira? So even today, even in 2013, in the past 10 and 20 years, 
We hear the expression among the churches of God, we're all the same. Well, Mr. Lambert Greer gave a sermon that was in Global Church of God, number 199, we're not the same. And, no, I guess that was, no, that was in uh, Living Church of God, November 9th, 2002. And we had a Living Church of News article uh, written by Mr. Greer uh, titled, We Are Not, and then not is italicized, We Are Not All the Same. That was in the September-October 2004 Living Church News. Mr. Greer begins his article, Does it make a difference which church of God you attend? Today there are more than 300 church of God groups that acknowledge the Sabbath and the holy days. Only a few are organized bodies. Most are very small and may represent only a family or very few individuals. And since he wrote this, there are many different groups that have just multiplied because one family left the church and considered themselves a church by themselves. Of these larger church of God bodies, some claim we are all the same. This statement, however, ignores real and defined differences. In truth, we are not all the same. So we must ask the question, what differences, difference do these differences make to you as a member of God's church? Are they important to your salvation? So I think most of you know, and we have some of you that have come from other fellowships, uh, from other churches of God here to the living church of God, and you've told us why you came here, because you saw that those, the fellowship in which you belong to, the branch or the church of God you were attending, had some major fallacies in it that would impede your spiritual growth. And uh, Mr. Greer, in his article, emphasizes four key distinctives. A distinctive, by the way, we use that terminology to show differences between different groups, a distinctive is defined as serving to identify or to distinguish. What are the distinctives of the living church of God? Mr. Mr. Lambert Greer mentioned four key distinctives. Correct government teaches the way. It's the heading of one of his uh, sections in his article. Doing the work, the Ezekiel warning, and being an overcomer. We already mentioned the uh, matter of uh, the proofs of God's church. But he concludes the article uh, by saying, we need to understand that we are not all the same. We consider ourselves, who do we consider ourselves to be? Dr. Meredith has shown that we are restoring original Christianity, that we are the remnant coming down from the original first century church down to this day today. Mr. Greer continues, We consider ourselves the Philadelphian remnant, but we should not wear that as a label. If we start putting that on as a label, I am Philadelphian, we miss the point. The point of Revelation 2 and 3 is a message of what we need to do. We need to look on being Philadelphian as a responsibility and a duty, something we strive to be, not a label that makes us superior to others. A label means nothing. What means something is that we are Philadelphians from the heart. So how do you know what branch or what group you should belong to? By the distinctives and by their fruits. Of course, Matthew 7, verse 20. 
By their fruits you will know them. And those who have come to us from other fellowships looked at the fruits of the living church of God and said, I'm home when they came with us. We know Isaiah 8 and verse 20 as a test of a church and a group to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. In Dr. Meredith's booklet, Where is the True Church Today?, he says, I will list and explain just five of these signs. There are many signs, he says, so that if your mind is open, you may know how to recognize God's true church on earth today. Number one, the fear of God and how significant, how powerful a key that is to the church. You look at all the other churches of God, are there leaders leading in the fear of God? I know Dr. Meredith does. I know I choose the fear of God, and it shows in Proverbs, the second chapter, that fools do not choose the fear of God. Number one, the fear of God. Number two, the true church has God's name. Number three, growth in grace and knowledge. And other church groups don't want to grow in grace and knowledge. They just feel that everything's already in concrete and stone and you can't learn anything new. Growth in grace and knowledge. Four, the sign of God's people, the Sabbath and God's spirit. Number five, God's church does the real work of God. So, brethren, when we consider the fruits of the church, God has given us overwhelming evidence in determining where his true church is actively serving him. Been back uh, some years ago, must have been around, I guess, 1997 or 98, Mr. John O'Gwynn and I were discussing the subject of branches in the church And he wrote me the following in an email, quote, I would make the point that on a tree a branch can be healthy, thriving, and bearing fruit, while another branch can be barren or even beginning to rot and decay. Then in parentheses he said, I just had a big branch fall off the oak tree in my yard while the other branches appear healthy, parentheses close. By calling the other group's branches, we are not saying one place is just as good as another. We're simply acknowledging that there are converted people in more than one group. So we need to understand that. And we pray for ministers in other Church of God groups. We pray for brethren in other Church of God groups. But what distinguishes the living Church of God? Before the disruption in November 1998, and that's another story for those of you who are new, One of the distinctions Dr. Meredith made about the church, which was then called the Global Church of God, was that it was the living branch of God's church, even before we became the living church of God. So I found that very interesting. It was a prescient comment. In his sermon, Where is the True Church of God Today?, which he gave in the Global Church of God, May 17, 1997, Dr. Meredith gives this introductory statement in his sermon. 
Let's review five foundational truths identifying the true church of God, the living branch of the true church of God, certainly. And I think it's important that we understand that. Identifying the true church of God, the living branch of the true church of God. So thank you. It's just so inspiring to find that in my notes. So after the re- reading the description of the Philadelphia church in Revelation, uh, Dr. Meredith in that sermon concluded this way. My brethren, we are that church. That is, after reading the Philadelphian church description in Revelation 3. We are the continuation of the Philadelphian church of God. We have these five points, not perfectly. We want to grow in all of them. We're going in that direction. And be grateful that God has given us the opportunity to continue the work of the Philadelphia Church of God and to have the identifying signs of the living branch of God's church today. That's how he concluded that sermon of May 17, 1997. So, brethren, we believe that we are the living branch of God's church, but we all have to be close to God And we also make sure that we do not assume that we have it made. You might just turn there, 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, 1 Corinthians 10. And uh, this is uh, an admonition for all of us. It tells us 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We don't think we stand on our own. We're always continuing to strive to enter in at the straight gate, the narrow gate. And we, of course, listened to Dr. Meredith's strong warning two weeks ago in his sermon, The Great Rebellion. It was given on April 13, 2013, when he saw that there's huge church will dominate the world and the world will be deceived. And when you read, you, you do your own search in the book of Revelation and look at the time where it says, Deception. Of course, you know uh, Romans, uh, Revelation 12, 9, that Satan has deceived the whole world, but in the context of the beast power, all nations will worship the beast. It's a huge deception that's going to take place. I just received uh, the other day latest uh, Foreign Affairs magazine, May, June 2013. And uh, I just happened to come across an article here. Uh, the Foreign Affairs allows all kinds of opinions. It just says that the opinion should be, um, be logical and verifiable. And this one is called The Church Undivided, page 117, Benedict's Quest to Bring Christians Back Together. In terms of reading the introduction by uh, Victor Gaetan, G-A-E-T-N, who is uh, an international correspondent for the National Catholic Register. He writes, In terms of budget, personnel, and global reach, the Roman Catholic Church rivals the United Nations. And as far as having a track record of promoting tolerance and peace without resorting to force, it has no equal among states. What? What about the Inquisition? What about the Crusades? Without resorting to force? Um, I'll just skip down to uh, another comment here. He's, he's actually showing how Benedict, uh, Pope Benedict, had influence among 
the various religions and trying to help unite them back into one Christian religion. The article continues on page 117. Benedict's authority as a renowned theologian and the happenstance of his German birth made him an unusually successful advocate for Christian unity. Indeed, Benedict did more during his eight-year reign to overcome the Great Schism of 1054 and the Protestant Reformation and to promote interfaith dialogue than any of his predecessors. Francis, undoubtedly, will continue this effort. So when you read Revelation 18, Revelation 17, you realize what is going to happen. You have the false prophet, you have the beast power, you have this massive deception, this great rebellion that is going to take place in 2 Thessalonians 2. On page 127, on this article from Foreign Affairs, page 127, Christian unity will only grow stronger under France's leadership. That's Pope Francis, not the nation of France. Ecumenical magazine Christianity Today has called Francis, quote, a pope for all Christians, end of quote. The ecumenical magazine Christianity Today has called Francis a pope for all Christians, and he is known for befriending, praying with, and studying the Bible with religious leaders of different faiths. I'll just read one more quote here from page 128. Francis' behavior so far indicates a rethinking of the papacy. On the balcony of St. Peter's Basilica, immediately after his selection, he referred to himself as Bishop of Rome, the most modest papal title. Francis dresses and travels unpretentiously and discourages peers from spending money to attend his installation. All this reveals a plan to undercut the imperial trappings of the papacy, a goal already respected by other Christian leaders. So we need to understand where God's true church is. This is the church undivided written by a Catholic correspondent saying that really looks good. It's really Benedict did a great job, and now it's really looking good under Pope Francis. Well, all the Protestants and all of us are really going to get together. So again, we have to be alert and make sure that we are not deceived by an upcoming global deception as Christ reveals in his word. And I hope again that you'll read uh, the article uh, by Dr. Wanael Francis I, the final, the final pope. As we've seen, the characteristics of the true church are one of zeal, of fulfilling God's work and mission. We've discussed the matter of mission before, but it's so integral to knowing where is the living branch of God's church and what work is it doing. Let's turn to Matthew 28 and just to review our mission, mission statement, Matthew 28, and uh, starting with uh, verse 18, and Jesus came and spoke to his disciples, 11 disciples with him in Galilee, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, or as the King James has, all power. So Christ has all power. When you read in Hebrews 1, he sustains the universe with his power. There's nothing impossible for God. He's all power in the universe. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore. Therefore, because he has that power, you have the backing 
and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into, as it should read, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I've reviewed this with you before, but uh, Dr. Meredith's editorial in the May-June 2009 LCN, The Purpose of God's Church, in which he said, I hope, brethren, you will catch the vision and join us in fulfilling the sevenfold commission. Of course, it could be worded or structured differently, but these key elements of Christ's commission of his church, as outlined above, can be broken down into seven parts. Again, I've preached on this before, but one, preach the gospel of the kingdom uh, kingdom and uh, the true name of Jesus Christ. And, of course, we have false Christs and people misusing the name of Christ. So it's the true name of Christ. Two, preach the end-time prophecies and the Ezekiel warning to the Israelitish peoples. Three, feed the flock and build all our members to the stature of Jesus Christ as best we can. Each one of us is being transformed into the image of Christ, Romans 8, verse 29, into his very character, his nature, his mind, his spirit. Uh, Number four, be examples to the church of God, to the world, and of Christ's way of life. No, Christ came that we might have life and have it more abundantly, John 10, 10. And you're kind and loving and serving to your neighbors and people you meet in the grocery store or at your place of employment. You're the light of the world. Number five, learn and practice servant leadership in all our dealings with others. Restore, number six, apostolic, or now we would say original Christianity and all that this implies. Seven, build an atmosphere of radiant faith within God's church. And so we are striving to do that, to bear the fruits, to fulfill the mission that Christ has given the church with all our hearts. Jesus said, you know that scripture, John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, his nourishment, where vitality and energy come from. We're motivated to fulfill God's will and to finish his work. But in doing that, the true church has God's biblical form of government, which is a distinctive to the living church of God. It's distinctive in that it promises and practices servant leadership in addition to a hierarchical structure of government that is very plain and clear in the Bible. Dr. Meredith, years ago, wrote an article which appeared in the January 1986 Good News magazine titled Judging and discipline in God's church. He wrote, What is Christ's way of protecting his church from troublemakers? Is there a way we can judge, quote-unquote, evildoers who creep into local congregations? Now we know in 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, that the Apostle Paul was saying, Look, you should have judged the sinners in your congregation. You didn't. But God's true church does have judging and discipline within the church, exercising the kind of biblical and godly discipline that was absent in Corinth. And again, the Apostle Paul 
corrected them because of that. He said in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, And if the world be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matter? Dr. Merritt concludes in the article on judging and discipline in God's church, quote, God holds his ministers responsible for teaching you his word and for directing his church and carrying out church discipline. By following God's way of church discipline and judgment, the church of God may go forward in peace and love and will be purged of all sin to be presented, quote, holy and without blemish, end of quote, to Christ at his coming. What a beautiful picture to think of the church. And I hope that all of us can fill that description, that we can be holy and without blemish. You know, Hebrews 13, 7, it says, Remember those who have the rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. And Hebrews 13, 17, Obey those who rule, the, who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as they who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So Satan is the great deceiver, and he attacks God's church. He's called the accuser of the brethren in Revelation 12 and verse 10. And we've had a lot of accusations leveled at the living church of God and even at uh, the leadership of the living church of God here more recently. Why is there government in God's church? To promote and ensure unity, to accomplish God's work and his will, and to protect the flock. Now, there are extremes in Church of God's uh, group's government. Some have a hierarchical structure, but they have extremes. One is despotic or oppressive, and some of you have experienced that, and that's why you're with us, because that hierarchical structure was abused and was not following the principle of servant leadership as we teach here. And on the other hand, there are governments and churches of God that are weak, that are more like a social club, or that are Laodicean. And some have had their own man-made form of government. They may even vote for board members or for their councils. There are different forms of government in the churches of God, and Christ will be judging them. I was uh, talking to an elder in another fellowship some years ago and mentioning that God's pattern of government was hierarchical. And I asked him, what was the highest, more authoritative governing body in his church? He said, well, the, the general council of elders, the, the largest group, and they select the council, and then the council in turn selects the officers and the division managers. So well, what he described was an upside-down pyramid. So you have the largest group at the top. That's not God's form of government. It's not an upside-down pyramid. In God's church, Christ selects the leaders, and we've seen that pattern in Exodus, the 18th chapter. We remember where Moses' father-in-law advised him concerning effective governing and organization. Of course, we have that described also in Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12, the form of God's government. God's church is organized. It follows the biblical pattern, as I mentioned, in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, 
but we must avoid those who say they are apostles and are not. The Corinthian church was enlightened. It tolerated sin. And God corrected that church strongly through the apostle Paul. One church leader told Dr. Douglas Winnale and me one time that uh, when we asked about their doctrinal approach, he said uh, the answer was to us, we carry a big umbrella. What he meant by that was we tolerate all kinds of doctrine. We have basic teaching, but we tolerate a broad base of opinion within the teaching of the church. We carry a big umbrella, he said. Well, let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, and see if that's what Paul told the Corinthian church to do, carry a big umbrella. 1 Corinthians 1 and uh, verse 10. Now, again, they were not fulfilling the unity that the apostle Paul was uh, admonishing them to fulfill. But here in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. You can't do that unless you have God's form of government with inspired, God-ordained leadership. We feel we have that in the living church of God. Dr. Meredith is evangelist, ordained as evangelist 61 and a half years ago. Is that right? 61 and a half years ago? 60 and a half years ago. 60 and a half. Sorry, I gave him one more year. 60 and a half years of proven, tested, godly leadership in God's church. And you have to, again, examine where are the fruits and with the council of elders. Yes, we have vigorous discussions. They had vigorous discussions in Acts 15 when they came up to the council to Jerusalem. We have vigorous discussions. We don't all have yes men, but we all want to have God's mind on a particular issue and a subject. And then when we have that mind and council with all of us agreeing, we speak the same thing. And yet we aren't perfect in that. We are striving to do that. But we have to fulfill our responsibilities. And there are those, again, who are self-appointed critics who accuse us of uh, various uh, ideas or power struggles or some kind of strange things. And as I brought out in the sermon on we are his members or members of his body in that sermon one of the point number four I brought out was don't isolate yourself from the body. And I gave examples of men, evangelists, and others, not by specific stories, but who have isolated themselves and went way off base when Proverbs 18.1 says, He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. If you'll turn to Proverbs, the sixth chapter, it's very important in the unity of God's church, and some around God's church, the living church of God, has some problems with this. You know, there are times when we develop or grow and understand, have new understanding of the Scriptures as God reveals it to us, and we discuss it, we test it from one point to another. And uh, so 
There are those, however, that accuse us of various things, and yet even if you did not agree with one of the church's teachings, what should you do? You go to a minister and say, well, you know, Mr. League, Mr. Meredith, I, I don't understand why we teach A, B, and C. Could you please explain it to us? Well, that's the proper approach when you disagree with some doctrine. But if you go out in public in social media and you attack the church's teachings, what are you doing? Proverbs 6, verse 19. What does God hate? He says in verse 16, this, these six things the Lord hates, yea, seven are what? An abomination to him. A false witness, verse 19, who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. If any of you have done that, you need to repent of your abomination. And I didn't say that. God calls you and have committed abomination. On Facebook, on Twitter, social media, you support, I hope no one here is, but I'm talking to people, of course, around the world, you support the critics. And you are sowing discord among the brethren. Now, there are those who say, well, you know, I, I really haven't done anything bad. I'm, I'm just expressing my opinion. Oh, really? You know what it says in Romans, the first chapter, about those who are abominable in their sexual practices, but those who also approve them. They're not practicing, but, oh, that's all right. I'm tolerating same-sex marriage. I tolerate homosexual activity. You know, I'm enlightened. But God condemns those who approve those sins. And God condemns those who sow discord among the brethren. I just want to give that as a warning. We've seen too much of it in God's church. And um, I hope that will be helpful to the church. When Mr. Armstrong led the church, we kept Pentecost on the wrong day. Did you old-timers sow discord then? No, you did not. You knew that Christ would reveal the truth in his time. When Mr. Armstrong changed his teaching on makeup for women, you old-timers, did you leave the church each time he changed, changed the teaching? No, you did not. And before the church came to the true understanding of divorce and marriage, did you leave the church? No, God will always lead his church into the truth as he did with Mr. Armstrong. So thank God that Mr. Armstrong restored to the church those major truths that we still teach today. The living church of God has its weaknesses. After all, God has chosen the weak of the world. But under Christ's leadership, Dr. Meredith continually asks us to examine ourselves. How can we do better? He challenges us. What do we need to change? We're striving to do better. In today's sermon, we've seen that God is judging his churches, various groups that to some degree fulfill the fundamentals of biblical church doctrine. We see in Revelation 12 that even the Laodicean church is going to be in the Great Tribulation because they are told, Revelation 12:17, they are a group who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. But God is still going to allow them to be tried in the fire. 
He says in Revelation 3, you might turn there, Revelation, the third chapter. I, I'm sorry. I, no, I'm not sorry. I'm going over time, but uh, I won't apologize for going over time. <laughs> you don't have any snacks afterwards after anyway, so... So you can stay another hour. So, <clears throat> Revelation 3 and uh, verse 18, he says to the Laodicean church, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. So God has promised Philadelphians protection from the great tribulation. Why? Because you have kept my command to persevere, he says, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. That's Revelation 3 and verse 10. It's because we take correction now, we won't have to be corrected in the great tribulation. And Dr. Meredith has uh, an editorial in the Living Church News. What is one of the greatest characteristics of conversion? The willingness to take correction. And the Philadelphians have been able to do that. They will not have to be corrected in the Great Tribulation. So, brethren, we thank God for his calling. He is judging the churches of God just as Christ did in the first century and throughout the history of the church until now. As long as we strive to fulfill God's will in our lives and complete the Great Commission, He's given us, through His Spirit, we can rejoice in this period of judgment. Judgment doesn't have to be a sorrowful, frightening experience. It can be a very positive experience. We've all been rejoicing today because we know that God is blessing his church, blessing his work. We still have to overcome. We have a mission to accomplish. So thank God for his calling. He's called the weak of the world. We aren't the greatest in the world. But we must be sober, walking in the fear of God, practicing the love of God, and also loving brethren in other branches of God's church, praying for them, and realizing that we have to be proven, tested, and that we can be faithful, that we can also be predictable in God's kingdom. Let's turn to one final scripture, Matthew 25, verse 21. Matthew 25, verse 21. We need to be faithful so that, as Jesus said here in Matthew, the 25th chapter, to those who are faithful, and may he be able to say it to each one of us that we will be faithful in little, that we'll be faithful in kingdom responsibilities. Matthew 25, verse 21. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And may the living church of God enter into the joy of our Lord.